0: Welcome to the Future of Protein Production podcast. In this series, we will explore the technological advancements that are shaping alternative proteins. From cultured meats to plant based proteins, we will talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein production system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities and challenges of the alternative protein production industry in the years to come.
1: And welcome to this april may 2023 edition of protein production technology international and continuing this feature on alternative seafoods we're pleased now to be speaking with chris bryson who is the founder and ceo of new school foods they're a toronto-based startup that we featured in our news earlier in the year uh, after the company secured a 12 million dollar um, seed round and taking the company's total funding to about 13 million dollars Um, New School Foods' first product is a plant-based fillet, or fillet, which looks, cooks, tastes, and flakes just like wild salmon. And as I'm sure Chris will tell us, they're achieving this with, among other things, some novel muscle fiber and scaffolding technology. So, Chris, welcome. Nice to have you with us. Thanks for having
2: Um, me. I'm I'm glad glad that you brought up the very important discussion, which is, is it pronounced fillet or fillet? Because I'm not a fillet (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well in in the UK here we say uh well we say fillet and then sometimes we say fillet mignon. It depends uh <laughs> it depends what restaurant we're in. <laughs> it's yeah. it's a fillet of fish in McDonald's, that's all I know anyway. But uh not that I eat them. But look, uh, first off, how did you get into the food tech space? I, I think I read somewhere um, that at one time you were involved in e-commerce, is that right? There's a bit of a jump from, from e-commerce into food tech. It's a bit of a different
2: world and, and it was completely unexpected, so my my prior life, if you will, was in the e-commerce space. So I was the founder and CEO of uh, a white label e-commerce platform that would work with major grocers to help them sell their groceries online. Uh, and we started it back in 2011 when people said, oh, online grocery, that will never work. Um, but it was, it was a business that was rooted in, in behavior change. And it was a really, really fun ride. Um, so at the time of the acquisition, which was in 2018, Uh, it was the first time I I had time and, uh, I felt in the rabbit hole of learning about, um, you know, our food system and that in turn got me very excited and motivated about getting into this space. And the idea of something completely different, uh, was quite attractive to me.
1: Mm -hmm. So what was your inspiration for, for starting new school foods and, and seafood in particular, a lot of companies are out there making alternatives to conventional meat products and you've picked seafood. So first at, at a high level, I got involved in alternative protein
2: because I I learned about the realities of factory farming and that um, mm-hmm. that really struck a chord with me. It was sort of, uh, it was a multi-month experience that, that really changed my life and I became very passionate about getting involved in the space at first. So I didn't think at first I, I had any business being involved in a startup because I'm not a food scientist, I'm not an engineer, I don't even really like to cook. Um, so right. <laughs> why should I be running a, a food company? Um, so I first got involved actually as an angel investor. I thought that's how I best could contribute. And what I noticed very quickly, and this is back in like circa 2018, 2019, 2020, this is in the heyday of beyond meat and impossible. I think they mm-hmm. IPO'd in 2018 and everyone was interested in getting to the space. So there were tons and tons and tons of startups. And there were also a lot of investors that got involved in the space that really came from the tech industry. They didn't really understand food. And what I noticed time and time again is that most of the startups weren't really being encouraged or motivated to invest in research and development. So you ended up with a lot of companies that were creating a lot of B2 products, products using the same ingredients, same process, same technology, um, which inevitably leads to a lot of, um, sort of missed expectations. So I got I got involved with New School primarily as a reaction to to seeing that there wasn't sufficient R&D. So New School actually first started out as was more of like a hold code that was sponsoring various different research development projects in the hopes that one of those would would uncover something exciting. And then we could turn that into a you know more standard company.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm right, you're currently focusing on Wild Salmon. I mean, what, why is that? Are there any um, specific conservation concerns with this species. So I mean, what's the current state of play?
2: So when we first were in that research and development phase, we did have the overall target of being able to create a whole cut fish analog. And we did decide to double down, uh, very quickly in the project on salmon as a species. So the the reason for that was primarily volume. So if you look at, at North America, salmon is the most highly consumed species of fish. Um, in fact, second most highly consumed type of seafood, second only to shrimp in terms of metro tons. And the reason why we decided to focus on salmon instead of shrimp is because we really wanted to focus on a center of plate, uh, like the, like a product that, that you have for dinner that you, maybe you go out to a restaurant and you seek out. Um, we knew that because we wanted, we were going to take a little bit of a longer road to come to market. And invest in research and development that we really wanted to go after a product that was going to be incredibly enticing, but incredibly difficult, but still very important to pull off, like in terms of changing our food system. And so obviously salmon is highly consumed, highly desirable, but a very difficult product to tackle. So that's why we went after it.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're still a fairly young company, but you've um, you've achieved a fair amount already. I mean, all of those milestones, um, which one would you say um, so far has been... The most significant. I mean, that could be a tech breakthrough. It could be a key hire. It could be a, an investment round, for instance.
2: Uh, I would have to say it's probably the technology that we've developed, and when, and it wasn't an overnight thing. It's been a matter of of incremental discoveries building on on them uh, on each other. So it's been a, a three year process to really take the tech to where it is today. We still have more work to do, but it's produced some some exciting products that you've seen, I think, in the photos and the videos. Um, But yeah, I think the technology that we've created is is exciting because it accomplishes something that most of the other technologies or none of the other technologies, I would say, uh, do accomplish in the sense that it creates a product that is incredibly fibrous, it's whole cut. And and fibrous is really, that's the essence of meat, whether it's seafood or or land-based meat. So it it accomplishes a lot of things. It's also a very scalable technology. And that, that unto itself, I think, is really the highlight is how we've created this technology that can create um a new class of products
1: yeah when you've got those important areas i guess you've got some taste um texture aesthetic as well and then you know mouthfeel and i guess functionality as well cooking achieving all of those at the same time is is no mean feat
2: it it is not uh, we often internally refer to it as kind of a rubik's cube Um, Uh so it's interesting how you can try to solve one problem and as soon as you solve that suddenly three other problems are potentially adversely affected so the reason why it's yeah. taken three years is to really you can solve the rubik's cube but it takes time
1: it's a bit of an argument, yeah sure right yeah yeah well, yeah my stepson seems to be able to do it apparently there's a formula you can look at it on youtube um now the, the process that you use i understand is quite unique most other plant-based um meat products are extruded um so they're essentially start out cooked um uh, you also believe starts out looking raw and i've, I've seen pictures of it and it's it, it's it's crazy. Um, um, so it takes on an appearance of a cooked fish as you cook it. How, how, how do you achieve that if you're allowed to let us into any little trade secrets?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and and thank you for asking. Um, so wh- I think what's what's fundamentally different, the reason why we wanted to go a different path than extrusion, as, as you astutely pointed out, is that extrusion uses heat to create texture. So basically you keep your proteins to a really high temperature and then you stretch them out through this long, typically cylindrical long vessel. And so that creates texture. Um, and obviously we need texture because if you're working with soy, otherwise you just get something that's untextured like tofu. I mean, it has texture, but not not obviously a very different texture than meat. So the goal is to really create that fibrousness. The problem with using heat is, as as you also pointed out, is that it cooks your proteins. And so then what happens is you have to do all this interesting... You have to add other ingredients that will transform the color upon, upon cooking. So it simulates the transition from raw to cooked, but Mm -hmm. effectively your, your proteins are pre-cooked and that can also lead to textures that are less desirable, that are more rubbery, um, because they're heated to really, really, really high temperatures with some of these plant-based proteins. Um, so we wanted to approach it differently because working backwards from hopefully a a very solid outcome five years down the future where people are buying our product in the grocery store at the shelf side by side with fish. We knew right away that we needed our product to look like the product it's going to emulate. And if we use the technology like extrusion, we're not going to produce something that looks like raw fish. Raw fish has a characteristic look to it. It's it's shiny. It's semi-translucent, you know, you've seen what, how it transforms from raw to cook. And so we knew that extrusion was just, didn't feel like it was the right tool, certainly for whole cut fish alternatives. And we want to start off with something that looked, like I said, more raw initially. So we pioneered this new technology that would allow us to create structure or those muscle fibers, but using actually the opposite of heat, we use cold. we use freezing in order to imbue texture into our product. So that's just a little bit of a high level. Yeah.
1: Um, I am a, a, a bit of a cook. Um, well, I am forced with doing most of the cooking in the house. So, you know, I cook salmon in different ways. Sometimes I have it raw if it's marinated or something. Mm -hmm. Are you able to achieve that with this product? So our goal
2: is really to optimize around a cooked experience itself. Mm -hmm. I'd be lying if I said we don't, you know, check in to see how it is raw. Um, but once again, going back to that Rubik's cube analogy, we're really trying to optimize for, the scenario that we think most customers are looking for. So there're lots of other amazing plant-based seafood startups that are focused on raw food applications like poke bowls and sushi alternatives and um I, I you know we really want to go after the space that that less people were focused on which is the cooked application. I think over time we will try to optimize the product to work in both scenarios but we're really trying to right now focus on that center of plate, your dinner, your entree.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean the, the the look of the product and the the, the texture um and the, the functionality I guess when you're cooking a scaffolding comes into that in a in a big way. What sort of ingredients are you using for the scaffolding? And and then what ingredients are you using to build up that sort of muscle and, and fiber tissue around it?
2: Yeah, um great question. So I'll tackle them uh sort of in that order. So when we create our scaffold. We're typically using a uh, mix of of different ingredients which are are typically called um, hydrocolloids and sometimes we'll mix those hydrocolloids with a couple of other ingredients but they're really the hero ingredients that help to um, first create a gel and then we we use some freezing technology to transform that gel from what would be something analogous to like jello if you think if you're probably familiar with jello transform it from a piece of jello into a scaffold that has channels, that has directionality and all those kinds of things. So, um, I mean, there's lots of different hydrocolloids out there. And the nice thing about what we've, what we've been able to figure out in the lab is that for some applications, um, some hydrocolloids uh, are good for other applications. Others might be more suitable and not every single one of them works. So there's there's a pretty wide range that that we work with today. And we're actually. There is actively this month, um, sort of a side-by-side race between two different systems to see which one's going to work. But, um, but yeah, effectively the scaffolds are, are primarily hydrocolloid based.
1: Uh-huh. And, and then, then the ingredients yourself.
2: Yeah. And so, and then the ingredients, what's, what's really exciting to me about the scaffolds that we create is they're, they're effectively like an empty vessel or we use them as, as vessels. And that gives us the freedom to work with a variety of different ingredients. And really, this becomes a platform. So that means that whatever formulation we come up with for salmon, we can use different ingredients, different proteins uh, for other products. And so some of the things that, that we pay attention to, for example, is, okay, well, at what temperature do we want it to cook? Do we want it to transition? And some animal meats sort of have different transition points, so we can tune the ingredients to make sure that we're emulating as closely as possible the, the ingredients to have the right functional um, mm-hmm. benefits or the functional sort of properties that would best emulate that animal product. So so we use a variety of proteins that uh, that have different characteristics. We use functional proteins and we typically blend that with sort of other, other um, bulk proteins, if you will, to create our own blend. And then we mix those proteins also with fats and that and those fats are typically liquid fats because we know that consumers are gonna have this expectation that if it's plant-based fish, they're still gonna get their omega-3s. And we've tested that over and over with different consumer panels. And unequivocally, that's the first thing that people expect is their omega-3 content. So we're able to get those into the scaffolds as well. And then aside from, aside from the proteins and the fats, the liquid fats, I should say, um, which are healthy fats, they're unsaturated fats, they're good for you. We then will also include flavors and colors, so it's a it's it's a fairly forward um, formulation,
1: if you will. Yeah, well, you answered my next question there, which was about how, yeah how how you engineer the sort of nutritional um, benefits of conventional fish into your product. So you you're ahead of uh, ahead of me there. Well, it's sorry it's go funny
2: on. that you ask about you ask about nutritional benefits, and, and when we ask consumers what they're looking for in a plant based analog there's really two things that pop out. Um, one is is omega-3s, uh, the other one is is protein. And, and that seems like an obvious and a given, but the reality is that a lot of plant-based seafood analogs that are out there and that have been around for quite some time typically don't have any protein. And so it's very important that if you're gonna substitute a piece of fish, that it really is a protein. People, you know, grocery stores often, I know this from like my former life and working with grocery chains, they always refer to Um, uh, the meat is like a center of plate protein. That's really what, what consumers are primarily looking for in their meat. And so if you, if you don't have high levels of protein, um, you're not really a proper analog. So Mm. getting a high degree of protein is something that our, our, our scaffolds allow for. And, and obviously that's a really, really important thing for consumers. So those are the two primary things. And then there's some other nutritional benefits, um, that consumers often look for and that it varies a lot after those first two come up.
1: Yeah. I mean, this has been three years in the making, did you say, where you're up to to today? I mean, what have been the biggest challenges for you in getting to where you are today with this product, and and how did you sort of, um, you know, get that pattern right on that root's cube?
2: (laughs) It's, I mean, the funny thing, the major thing that, that that I've felt is really different in terms of running a food company instead of running a software company is Um, In software, if you imagine something, then you can put it on paper, you can design it. And if you can design it, you can code it, you can build it, you can launch it and put it in front of your customer. Food doesn't work that way. If you imagine it, that's great. But you have the laws of chemistry and physics to fight against. So to answer your question, um, because I don't want to seem like I'm dodging it, I think the the biggest challenge is really just fighting through the R&D because you can be onto something and it feels like it checks nine out of 10 boxes and it's this incredible technology. But then you find out that it has this fundamental flaw, like that relies on an ingredient that is either not approved or not cost effective, or maybe, maybe for example, you create the perfect plant-based salmon. But I know we had some early prototypes that didn't have heat stability, for example. So when you would cook it, like some of the scaffolds um, would melt away. So. You can have this perfect performance that does everything, but until you check all the boxes, um, you're not really there. So it, the, I think the really h- the hardest part of R&D is pushing through it and, and persevering and making sure you leave no stone unturned um, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, hopefully you'll be rewarded, but there's no guarantee either.
1: Yeah. Um, it's a small community, um, Alternative Seafood. I even heard the other day that there's a WhatsApp group um, that has um, certain <laughs> of the players in there. Um, that you probably keep an eye on developments from your competitors, uh, or you know, competitors in uh, inverted commas. Is there anything from a, another company out there that's really impressed you? Uh, and if so, you know, why is that? Something that you've seen or tasted, and just thought, wow. I mean, there's so much out there that that's I I, I really look at it as
2: a source of inspiration. I don't look at these companies as competitors. I see them as collaborators. I mean, effectively we are collectively trying to create a new category. And so to some extent, it, it's really, especially in the early days, it's very valuable to have other people pursuing the same mission because it increases the noise. It helps basically split the cost of marketing um, and increase consumer awareness, consumer demand. So um, I see all of the other players, I, I, I avoid using the word competitor. I see them as allies. Um, I've seen, you know, for example, the, the ones that are doing plant-based whole cut, uh, filets of salmon. There are two companies in particular. So Revo Foods as well, uh, as Plantish, like their products look incredible. And Mm -hmm. I know that, that, that inspired our team when we looked at those videos. And so what I like about, about having other players in this space is I think that at the end of the day, this, this is going to benefit the consumer and it's going to benefit the industry because if we can always push each other to, to produce superior products, um, how is that a bad thing? so I, I yeah, i I think there's so many sources of inspiration, so many companies working on exciting stuff. I think the next five years is going to be pretty interesting for alternative protein.
1: It's nice that it's a collaborative in- industry as well, yeah
2: Absolutely. generally on the whole and, say, and very no very very, very, very supportive people, like very open book, um you know, willing to share and willing to talk. and so it's 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 oddly friendly. It's kind of weird. It wasn't <laughs> like this. It wasn't like this in software. This industry is really unique that way.
1: No, I bet, I bet. Um now your business model at the moment, as I understand it, is to sort of work with restaurants um first. I mean what, what's the thinking behind that? I, I know it's a popular strategy for some players in the sector. Yeah, I think it's an important strategy in the sense that
2: chefs act as a form of validation for consumers. So it's almost like if I can impress the chef then the consumer feels more comfortable and more confident about the quality of that product it acts as a certain badge and um endorsement if you will mm-hmm. and and plant based seafood effectively is is mostly i don't want to say a non-existent industry but it's it's at its very very early stages and you don't see plant based seafood alternatives being widely available in any any restaurant today so there is a there's a wide open space for, for someone to crack through, and I think that uh, get as it turns out, one of the interesting facts we learned is, is that seventy percent of seafood um, is consumed through restaurants. So if you want to go where the consumer is, it's in restaurants more so than in grocery. Um, so it's it, it's for a combination of those two reasons.
1: Yeah, um, you you mentioned the future before, and that sort of next five years is going to be very exciting. I mean, how do you see this whole space evolving over the over those few years, whether it's plant based or selac based or fermentation derived, um, products?
2: Well, I don't think this will happen immediately, but I think when you, when you fast forward five years out, you'll, you'll see a lot of hybrid products and that, that delineation between plant-based versus fermentation based versus cell based, that's probably going to go away over time because I, I sort of see all those technologies as tools in the toolkit and. Today, some of those tools might be too expensive, but over time, they're going to come down in cost. And it might be that that tool is is better than another. You know, it might be that that a recombinant protein is more appropriate than, than a plant protein that that company is using. So, as long as your system doesn't prohibit you from using cell-based or recombinant proteins or ingredients, because there's more than proteins, there's cell-based fats. Um, then I think I think most companies are going to embrace the creation of hybrid products, and I think that's also going to it's going to come from the plant-based companies. You know, sourcing those ingredients, I think it's also going to come from cell-based companies realizing that it's more economically viable for them to create hybrid products themselves. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I yeah, I think those lines will, will begin to blur. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but certainly five years out, that's going to happen. That's probably going to be one of the most exciting things. It's just seeing more tools in the toolkit come to bear. So I think there's been a huge amount of push around getting either cleaner ingredients, um there's been a lot of pushback from plant-based protein products having too much sodium a lot of that actually comes from upstream so there's been a big push to get um ingredients and proteins that are cleaner have less off flavors have less colors um and and the suppliers and manufacturers know that so over time the ingredients are going to get better and i think the technologies for processing are also going to get better and better i mean most of the technologies that are used today for for plant-based proteins um we're we're sort of adopted from other industries, so they they aren't necessarily tailor made, and that's where you know there's a really exciting company called Rebellious Foods is developing yep. tailor made production technology for, for alternative protein products, which will make them more cost effective. So I, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but I think you're going to see improvements in, in price. I think you're going to see also improvements
1: in quality because we're going to have new tools and technologies to work with. Yeah. I guess uh, with plant based, the regulations don't impact you as much as say if you were trying to produce a cultivated seafood product that's correct right okay i mean of some of those sort of wider challenges regulations for some of the players in this sector is is a difficult but difficult one but as i understand it's it doesn't have to go through the usda process it's just the fda process um i think that's uh right in saying that. um one of the other big challenges is obviously the consumer um Mm -hmm. so uh, do you see that as the biggest barrier um to more alternative seafood consumption?
2: I, I think for this entire industry, the consumer is really um, the gatekeeper. Because at the end of the day, what we're trying to pull off is not just creating new products, we're actually trying to create habit change. And I think there's a big distinction. It's not, it's not like we're trying to sell, for example, a car that's a one-time purchase. And um, we're trying to create products that literally change people's behaviors um or that that you want to basically get someone to purchase that product multiple times you obviously we don't want people to buy the product once get excited about it and forget about it so behavior change i think is really really difficult to accomplish we saw this also in the software side actually for online grocery we noticed that we typically had to get someone to a fourth or fifth order for it to become habit for that to become part of their new routine and I think it's gonna be no different with alternate proteins. And we can't just expect that if you produce a great product once that that people automatically remember and repurchase it. So so yeah, it's it's not just about creating a great product. Um obviously the price has to be attracted to purchase it and keep repurchasing it. Um, we need to stay front and center within the consumer's mind to get them to sort of introduce these products into their into their grocery basket.
1: Yeah. I went to an exhibition in London last uh, December. I think it was early December, um, and I I could not. I wouldn't have been able to tell you the difference between some of the things that I tasted. They were just. They just blew me away. So, um, how do you measure success, um, Chris? You know, at what stage do you think sit back and think, "Yeah, okay, I I did it there." Um, And in addition to that, what do you think is the going to be the tipping point, um, for these alternative seafoods to really, really take off.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I very much subscribe to the Good Foods Institute's, the Good Foods Institute's philosophy that you really have to match on taste, texture, um, and, and then win at price. And I think once, once we do that and we do that across multiple product formats, it's there's, there's more to meat than, than burgers and chicken nuggets. And I, I don't mean that in disrespectful way. I just mean from a consumer portfolio perspective we we need to create a full assortment uh of of products so i think when when individual products start winning on on taste texture and price um then you're going to see this go from being a niche product or a premium product to really be a mass product i think that Mm -hmm. price is probably the biggest tipping point and um that's why i'm super excited to see what comes from companies like beyond and impossible over the next two years
1: Mm -hmm. do you expect any of those companies to move into the fish sector
2: i i I can't speak for them, but I would mm-hmm. it, what it seems in terms of obviously the space has been going through the, let's call it a bit of a reset period over the last twenty four months, um especially the last twelve months. and I think a lot of companies in the space are doubling down to really stay focused, and they're putting a lot of attention on price parity. they're putting a lot of attention on on quality of the product and maybe focusing less on on other uh other new products or other new innovations um mm-hmm. so I, even if they even if they did which I, I i mean if i was a betting person probably not but even if they did i think that would be great for the category and i'd welcome it
1: yeah yeah um right we're gonna finish off with uh what's next for you guys chris what's what's happening for new school foods next is there anything you can reveal that will uh the <laughs> readers even more than you have already
2: I, mean we're, we're trying to stay as laser focused as possible on bringing our product to market. And that starts with getting our production, our pilot production facility up and running. And, and the reason we have to do that, and we're going more of our own route is because our production process is novel. It's different. We can't necessarily set that up at a, at a co-manufacturer today. And, um, and we're really excited about that because that in turn is going to give us the freedom and the flexibility to optimize, 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 both in terms of the mm-hmm. economics as well as quality of the product. So um, short answer is we're looking to bring the product to market next year. That's mm-hmm. all we're thinking about.
1: Yeah. Well, look, thank you very much for your time. I um, really appreciate it. And I can wish you all the luck um, with the venture. And uh, yeah, the us so look big for being you. on <laughs> one of my plates soon. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to the Future of Protein Production podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices that are transforming the way we produce protein. Don't forget to subscribe to Protein Production Technology International, our multimedia magazine, and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes.